Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This is the start of our winter season. Meaningless words, obviously. It's just the same old stuff as before. Uh, we've had a break. We're back. And, uh, well, not much has happened since we went away. We we left just as Judd Trump had won a tournament. While we were away, Judd Trump won a tournament. And as we come back, Judd Trump has won a tournament. He's had the most extraordinary month of October. When the English opened, the Wuhan Open. And uh, just last night, the Northern Ireland Open. So three weeks, three tournaments, uh, three in a row. First time for 10 years that's happened. Quite incredible. Quite incredible. And I think he played his best snooker actually in the most recent event in Belfast because at, at various times he had to really dig deep. I mean, the match with Ian Burns, his highest break was 37, you know, but he found a way of winning. Not a Senkar match. There was some wonderful safety played in that. 3-1 down to Stephen Maguire, turned it round. 3-0 down to Barry Hawkins, turned it round. Made that great clearance in the seventh frame of the final against Chris Wakelin. Powered on. It was like an exhibition in the evening. Three centuries. Thank you very much. Ranking title number 26. He's now won... There's been 30 Home Nations events, OK? He's now won six. So he's won a fifth of all the Home Nations events. <laughs> I mean, it is incredible. And it just shows you what confidence can do. Um, if John Higgins had got on that yellow leading 5-2 in the semi-final in Brentwood and 1-6-2. Maybe, you know, Judd Trump would still be looking for another ranking title. But the fact is, he won that tournament, he won the next one, he won this one. And he goes to the international championship with a chance to win four in a row. That would be the first time in over 30 years that happened. And I think it's worth looking back, actually, at the other players. He's the fifth player to win three in a row. It's worth looking at the circumstances because snooker obviously has changed over the years. The structure of the calendar has changed. And they're not quite all sort of the same, if you like. The first one, I mean, there was sort of debate whether this should even count. Ray Reardon, he won the World Championship 1974, 1975, 1976. It was the only ranking of it. But actually, it was backdated because to get a ranking list assembled for 1976, they took the previous three World Championships. So when he played in the 1974 World Championship, he didn't know it was a ranking event. Nobody told him because, you know, there were no ranking points available. However, it's on the official list. It counts. It's just a very different thing. I mean, listen, to win the World Championship three years running is a great feat in any era. And it's not Ray's problem. There were no other ranking events. But that was the circumstances by which he did it. 
We then go to 1984, and Steve Davis uh, was the second player to do it. He won, and this was spread out over basically nine or ten months. He won the, the, the Classic in 84, the World Championship, sorry, the Classic in January, the World Championship in May, and the International in, eight, in uh, October. So, you know, uh, that again t- tells you that the circuit was just sort of getting going in terms of other events there. In, in what, nine or ten months, had three tournaments, he won them all. He then did it again, Steve, in 1988. And again, that run started at the World Championship. So he won the last event of that season. And then he won the first two events of the following season, the International and the Grand Prix. We then go to the, uh, the five in a row from Stephen Hendry in 1990. That started with the World Championship. So again, it's the end of that season. Then he won the Grand Prix Asian Open and Dubai Classic and the UK Championship. Now, the three in between there, the Grand Prix Asian Open and Dubai Classic... Pretty much identical to what Trump did. Three tournaments in four weeks. So he won the Grand Prix um, 21st of October. They then had a week off, went to Thailand. He won the Asian Open. They went straight to Dubai and he won that. So he won three in four weeks. That's exactly what Trump has done. And also, of course, Trump has done it in different parts of the world. So that is directly comparable. Of course, Hendry then went and won the UK Championship after it. So five in a row. He actually got to the final of the sixth event and then won the seventh. <laughs> I mean, ridiculous, really. But, uh, you know, that's Stephen Andrew for you. Uh, he did it again in 93. And again, it straddled two seasons. So he won the International Open, then the World Championship. And then the start of the next season, he won the Dubai Classic. But then you have to go fast forward 20 years to get to Ding Junhui. He was the fourth player to do it. He won the Shanghai Masters, the Indian Open and the International Championship. They were reasonably condensed. That was over about a six-week period, um, maybe seven-week period. But what Trump has done, um, you know, in this day and age, particularly the home nations with those best of sevens, or two of the the events were home nations, of course, in between had to go to China. I think it's one of the great modern achievements. I genuinely do. And, of course, as we say, he's not done yet, potentially. 20 matches in a row. Uh, He's going to play a wild-card first round of the International Championship. I mean, this could keep going on and on. It's uh, pretty incredible. Hats off to him. He's a very... Well, you can't have a very unique player. He's a unique player. Um, great shot maker, entertainer. And I think what I like about him, a lot of things I like about him, but he recognises the joy that the way he plays brings to people. And he will play the exhibition shots and get the crowd involved. That's good. It's good for snooker. you know. And, and also, I think, the, the fact that we now suddenly have... A dominant force in this in this moment is good because all all the sort of looking ahead to the international championship will be can Joe Trump win four? There's going to be great excitement, particularly if he goes a long way in it. You know how far will he get? Could he possibly win four in a row? That's good, I think. So um, yeah, brilliant. The the tournament uh, in Belfast I thought was terrific. We had a lot of stories um, along the way, which we might talk about later. Just on Trump though. You do also have to... Listen, he's out there doing it himself, absolutely. But you also have to credit his brother Jack. He's a very important part of the team. You may remember he sort of joined the firm, as it were, five years ago, actually, when they went to Belfast for the Northern Ireland Open. Trump hadn't won a tournament in a year. He'd won tournaments. He'd won eight ranking events. But he was not a consistent winner, and he wanted to become one. And Jack is a very important figure in that camp because... Well, I say camp. It's just the two of them. Um... The main thing to say is he's his brother, and that means he can speak to him in a way that a sort of friend can't, or a coach can't. They're blood, they've grown up together, but also he was a junior player, he was a very handy junior player himself, and Jack Trump knows the game inside out, so he can actually talk to his brother about technical stuff and maybe suggest sort of, 
you know, a, a tactic or, or way of changing things up in a match. Um, I like the fact he keeps out the way. He won't go running into the arena to, for reflected glory. He'll wait for Judd to call him over. Um, and he's just good company to have. He's someone Judd trusts ab- absolutely. He's in it for the right reasons. So I think that he is a very important figure there and has helped a lot. And it's interesting, actually. I mean, he's his brother, but the history of Snooker, I mean, you could write a, a sort of essay on snooker players' relationships with their fathers and how many of them seem to search for father figures because so many players over the years have turned up either with their dad because, of course, their dad always took them when they were young or a sort of older man who is essentially a sort of father figure. And that that's quite an interesting, I suppose, psychological thing to look into in, in snooker. Whereas Judd comes with his brother, who's younger than him. So it's a slightly different dynamic. Um, but uh, fair play to the both of them. They're having the time of their lives at the moment. Um, we had some terrific stories. Stan Moody, of course, broke through. Set just 17. Uh, last, a sort of British teenager doing well. Got to the last 16. Robbie McGuigan, you had to feel for with that uh, match with Anthony McGill. Andres Petrov beating Mark Allen. And so on and so on. Terrific week. Uh, the, the, it's a great venue, the Waterfront Hall. Everyone says that. But, of course, it's not just the venue. It's the people in it. And the crowd supported it. 10% increase on ticket sales, despite all the people missing. Um, so, yeah, a very successful week. And, um, you know, roll on the next one. Because qualifiers this week, but international championship coming up. Let's see what people have said. By the way, thanks for your patience while we've... Uh, I say we. I've been just uh, just switching off a little bit from the podcasting and concentrating on the commentary, of which there's been a lot. Um, but uh, we hopefully we'll be back for good now. Now, Jake Warwick... Right, first time listener, sorry, long time listener, first time emailer. I'm writing this after watching Judd Trump pick up his third ranking title in a row and fourth Northern Ireland Open title. Being assimilated to Trump, I've always followed his career since he broke through aged around 17. And like everyone else, was waiting for the talent to turn into titles. I can remember, like it was yesterday, watching the 2011 World Championship, playing a brand of snooker we'd not seen before and being disappointed he didn't lift the trophy. As Trump has mentioned himself, at that age, you think there'll be a lot more chances to win titles, but time soon passes you by. So many times Trump's had his haters and that he may never actually fulfil his potential. Since winning the Northern Ireland Open in 2018 against the best player ever to have played the game, Ronnie O'Sullivan, it's been amazing to watch Judd grow and develop as a player and a person. Him and his brother graciously and humbly go from tournament to tournament, picking up trophy after trophy. It amazes me how he still has his haters just goes to show that some people genuinely hate winners. Hendry had the same during the 90s, but all that really matters is that you're doing the business on the table. Just on that, Jake, and I'll continue your email shortly. They're just jealous, that's all it is. <laughs> they're, just, they're just jealous someone's doing well and they're not. That's, that's a story as old as time. Uh, I mean, social media now is 90% people who've never done anything telling really successful people that they haven't done enough. You'll, you'll have people on there saying to Trump, oh, well, you need to do this, you need to do that. He's doing fine. What are you doing? Would be what I would ask yourself. Anyway, we continue with Jake's email. Uh, seeing this week Trump's name high up on the ranking title finals list, only behind Ronnie Hendry, Higgins and Davis, really does show uh, that fans of the media need to put the respect on Judd's name that he deserves. The age-old discussion, he's not won enough triple crowns, will continue to rumble on, which does hold some credibility. However, you can only play the match that's in front of you and that the minute Trump is winning all of his, you have to think... There's at least another 10 years at the peak of the game where he will be, where he'll be by then, as there's no one in his age, age group anywhere near him. As a Judd fan, it's great to see him winning again, but more importantly, as a snooker fan, it's great for him to be bringing more eyes to the sport and playing the game how it should be played. 
Thank you for your, all your excellent work in the commentary box and on the podcast. The recent Judd Finals are only made better by the dynamic duo of you and Folsey in the commentary box. Well, that, that's very kind of you, Jake. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right when you say him doing well um, is good for snooker. I, I, I don't, you know, you can make the obvious Trump making snooker great again uh, joke if you want. Um, but uh, on, on the subject of, I mean, listen, to, to, he's not at the end of his career yet, so it's quite hard to gauge where he actually is in the all-time pecking order. If you want an all-time pecking order, and I'm, I'm increasingly coming around to the idea that it's kind of reductive because each each era, as we already sort of discussed, is different. But he's the best player of his age group. That's a, that's just a fact, clearly. I think to be considered at the end of his career alongside the likes of O'Sullivan and, and, and Hendry and Selby and the real, you know, greats, he has to be like them a multiple world champion. How many? I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan said four. That's not an unreasonable figure. Um, but clearly that is a, a metric that we use. It is. But that's not to ignore <laughs> winning all these other tournaments. And, you know, you mentioned the Triple Crown tournaments, I would argue that winning a Home Nations event is every bit as difficult, maybe more difficult, actually, than winning something like the UK Championship, where now he's only got to play five matches. Here he had to, he had to win seven. The matches are shorter, but there's more frames overall. There's more matches overall. Those best of sevens, he is a master at winning those. He's won by far more of those than anyone else. And so many times in a short match, there's the capacity to be vulnerable, vulnerable and to be beaten, and he just never seems to be. Um, as an aside, I bet Barry, <laughs> Barry Hearn's glad he's got rid of that million pound bonus they had in the early years of the home nations because Trump's won the first two. But, um, you know, the, these events, they're tough to win. They're tough to win. The one in China, there was a great atmosphere there, you know. So at the moment, with the tournaments he's winning and, and the way he's climbing that list you mentioned, you know, the sky's the limit for him, really. But yes, it's true. In the fullness of time, multiple world championships, they know that is a metric that people quite rightly will look at. And it'd be the same in any sport, you know, the, the very biggest titles. We have one real major, and that's the world championship. So clearly, he'll be looking to add to those over the next few years. But who's to say that that won't happen? Uh, now, we have also had our dear friend Alpha Bonzi. We'll have an email from him later that he sent a few weeks ago, but uh, he's got his usual... Four questions, sorry, three questions. He says, how does Trump keep doing it? How much longer can he keep doing it? Well, yeah, I mean, how he keeps doing it is great mental focus. I think it does help to be gen generally sort of physically fit, but also he's just a great snooker man. You know, he was saying actually the gap between Wuhan and uh, Belfast, he stayed out in Shanghai, he didn't really practice, and he, you could see he missed it. He said, I felt rusty. Now he's won two tournaments. I think he likes to sort of play snooker basically every day to, to some degree an hour or two here and there maybe, and then more intense practice when he feels he needs it. Um, he, he likes playing snooker, and that's kind of the secret. But also he's now got the temperament, clearly, to you know to, to just keep on winning. And, and what Stephen Hendry has identified is a bit of greed. You know, he wants to keep winning. He likes trophies. He's not going to celebrate one. He's going to try and keep winning them. And I think he is quite mindful of the records and all that stuff as well. You know, I, I know that on Eurosport last night we put the, put the stats up, the, the uh, total titles. And... Um, you could see his eyes sort of widen as he saw the company he's in. You know, O'Sullivan, Hendry, Higgins, Davis, Trump. That's the top five now. He's gone past Mark Williams, who would have grown up watching. And, of course, Mark's still winning tournaments. He's ahead of Selby. He's ahead of Robertson. Ahead of Murphy, Ding, all these great players. Um, so, you know, why wouldn't you uh, want, want more and, and try and keep climbing the ladder, get, get past Steve Davis? 
threaten John Higgins's place, you know, that, then you're in serious company. Uh, secondly, Chris Wakelin, at his alpha, Chris Wakelin's had a good week. If you were at his corner, what would you say to him to pump him up? I wouldn't say anything to him. I think Chris handled it all really well. Um, you know, he's outplayed in the final. That can happen. Let's not forget how well he played against Lazowski in the semis and just how well he played overall. Beat Murphy. Uh, had some really good wins, actually, along the way. And spoke brilliantly, I thought. He's a very good talker. Um, not just the post-match interview, but in general, if you saw any of his interviews with Eurosport, he actually says... He's thoughtful. He'll think about what he says. He's very honest and relatable, I think. And I, I'm delighted to see Chris doing well. You know, he was one of those players who could have been sort of tagged as a journeyman, middle ranking. Is he ever going to really kind of break through and threaten to climb the rankings? Well, he has done. He's 21st now. You know, potentially pushing for a master's spot, although obviously he would need to do well, very well, in the UK Championship to achieve that. But... You know, it's not impossible the way he's feeling, and I thought he handled it brilliantly. I don't think he needs any advice. I don't think he could look back on that final. The seventh frame was the big one. He just not closing that out did turn things, but that doesn't mean he would have won anyway. I mean, Trump, you know, most confident sort of spell of his career, never felt better in his life about playing snooker. So I don't think Chris has got anything to reproach himself for. I think he played terrifically well, and of course he's in the champion of champions as well, guaranteed. And Alpha's final question, although it might not compare to playing, how much of a buzz do you get out of commentating for the Belfast crowd? Yeah, I mean, it, I think you you respond to an atmosphere. Now, it wasn't a close final, um, which many of them have been. And, and we must also mention, of course, another left-handed win. Uh, Trump's won half of all the Northern Ireland Opens, four, <laughs> four out of eight. But anyway, yeah, you do get a buzz from watching great snooker, which is what we were privileged to, to see in the final and, and at various other times during the week and I always kind of end these tournaments on a high it's amazing sometimes they seem to start on a low and we'll get to that later with various sort of stuff off table but once you get stuck into them and you get to the end you, you're always kind of happy for the person who's won there's always a story in snooker there's always reasons why somebody winning is is good to see um, and so yeah, it was a buzz, and you know, and that's good that it still is because you know we've done the three tournaments. They're all different, but they're all really interesting in their own way. Obviously, Trump coming back in Brentwood, the, the Wuhan really his toughest match was the final, and then in some ways in Belfast, his most comfortable match was the final in the end. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just thought the crowd there were brilliant, and it's a great setup. I like the three tables during the week. The fact that they're all. I mean, you've got the main one in the middle, but there's nobody out in the back, you know, no, because it used to be that. There used to be a separate room. Everybody gets their chance in front of that crowd, and the crowd definitely make the event. Um, so it was a terrific week. I mean, I, you know, I can't sort of, um, can't sort of eulogise any more than that, really. I just thought it was a, a great tournament and uh, a reminder, once again, that, you know, snooker is a terrific sport, which, of course, <laughs> it's not news to anyone listening to this. Let's go to Declan. He says, uh, just watching your coverage of the Northern Ireland Open and your round-the-ground snippets between frames where you sum up what's happening on tables two and three. From attending tournaments, there are three tables operating. Where there are three tables operating, it struck me that this aspect of marketing snooker is probably underutilised. 
People who don't attend these tournaments in person may not realise that one of the best things about this setup is the option to flick your attention back and forth between the tables, so you're always guaranteed that an interesting situation arises on one or more of the tables. It also means that your ticket allows you to see at least two or three top 16 players per session. For people watching at home, I would think TV producers should explore the possibility of showing an around-the-ground type of coverage on one of the spare channels or red button. This approach worked well on Judgment Day in the past, and it could add an interesting dimension when it comes to attracting new audiences. I know the first thing anyone would say is budget, but if it proved a hit, it may expand the audience base, and an analyst or MC who isn't otherwise working in the arena could fill in to provide the commentary. The presentation model is known as Red Zone in the NFL, where it helps hugely to cut out the dead time in long games and gives a snappy TV experience for those who like to dip in and out of their sport. Well, thank you, Declan. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that idea. You do yourself, though identify i guess one of the sticking points which is just just uh, financing it also it's got to be said on television um the outside tables it they're often they're streamed but often the sort of they're not a broadcast quality necessarily to show on television now i don't know to what extent audiences care about that but people in tv uh, do um it may be something that could be done online in the future I mean, it's it's a good idea. Let's be clear, and like you say, it does does happen in NFL and other sports. Um, the good news is it was announced recently that Judgment Day will be happening again at the UK Championship. So the uh, final qualifying round of that that uh, that exact thing you describe will happen. They'll be going around the four tables. Uh, looking forward to that. But uh, yeah, w- I mean, you've identified, and and this is the answer to most questions when people write in about things. It's going to come down to is it actually worth spending the money on it? Because a lot of people just prefer to to watch you know the main match that they're sort of given but anyway n- nothing wrong with the idea uh max from scotland he said i love the podcast and listen to it every week without fail i also enjoy listening to you in the comms box too well thank you max he says i've been playing uh, watching playing snooker since i was 11 i'm pretty obsessed with it i also like collecting memorabilia too and wanted to know if you have any rare memorabilia or been gifted some over the years by players uh well on that i mean by players no <laughs> I've got various, I mean, whether you call it memorabilia, um, I don't know, but various sort of collectibles, I suppose. You, some, you used to get presents at, at various tournaments from the sponsor. So you get like an embassy decanter, which they, they weren't always, um, I mean, nothing against our dear friends at embassy, but they weren't always of the best quality, it's got to be said. They did quite often break. But sort of things like that, identifying tournaments, even notepads we got and pens and just things like that. Um, they're all kind of scattered hither and thither. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not really a collector as such. I just, I just keep stuff. It's not really the same thing. Anyway, Max says a couple of other questions if you don't mind answering them. Do you think there'll ever be another player that dominates snooker like Joe Davis, Ray Reardon, Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry? Or do you think the field now days is too strong? Well, <laughs> Judd Trump, if he's listening, might, might put his hand up there. He seems to be doing a pretty good job. It's very hard. I mean, what, what does domination mean? You know, even those guys didn't win every tournament. Well, Joe Davis did because there was only one. But, but you know, I mean, even Stephen Hendry lost sometimes. Um, but what we think about in domination, of course, is in terms of the big tournaments. The World Championship, Stephen Hendry won five years running. You know, Davis won it obviously six times in the decade. Hendry seven. Ronnie O'Sullivan's won it seven. So, you know, is someone else going to come along and, and, and rack up those numbers? Well, Mark Selby's already on four. You could say he's one of the most dominant players at the Crucible, certainly in the last decade. Um, we'll see. You know, if someone comes along who's really good, it, it can happen. But at the moment, you know, titles, Judd Trump aside, tend to be sort of shared around more. 
Max continues, I attended the Crucible semi-final in 2022 between Judd Trump and Mark Williams and also got tickets for the final next year. Can you recommend any good snooker clubs close to the Crucible? Sorry for the terrible questions and keep up the good work. Not terrible at all. Um, snooker clubs, uh, I, don't, I, I don't, I don't, um, I would never go in a snooker club during the World Championship. You see enough snooker as it is. Of course, they do have the academies very close, but, uh, there will be some. I mean, Phil Haig lives in Sheffield. I think he plays in one, so maybe he can let us know. But um, near the Crucible, I haven't noticed many literally near the Crucible, but there'll be some around, I'm sure. Um, maybe Google could be the answer. Uh, John Hogarth, thanks again for the great podcast, which I'm just back into again after a year away due to family bereavements. Hope you're back on for a UK Championship preview. Well, we're back, John. Uh, yes, um, and uh, all, all the best to you. Sounds like a difficult year. So the thoughts on scheduling the tournaments would be to do more proper tournaments, not lasting many weeks in July and August, or to allocate certain weeks as tournament weeks on the schedule, also avoiding a change of continent in consecutive weeks. Uh, well, I mean, we'll get on to this later, but I mean, the scheduling, you know, it's a bit of an issue. It's a good problem to have because there's a lot of demand for snooker, but um, we'll get on to that later. He says, talking of comebacks from near whitewashes, I remember reading a great match report in snooker scene in 1982 on the Irish Masters. And Alex Higgins came from 4-0 down to beat Cliff Thorburn. Yeah, well, I imagine, <laughs> I imagine there was a bit of an atmosphere that day, uh, John. He says, it's great to remember old British Open finals. I was there for Stevens against Francisco, the first session. He'd be 85, the first one. When Dickie Davis introduced it live on ITV as a capacity crowd. The audience burst out laughing as only the front four rows in shot of the TV cams were taken. So those of us there gazed at the banks of empty seats. I think most of the seats were sold, but as Steve Davis and Alex Higgins are both surprisingly lost in the semis, a lot hadn't made it into the arena for the first part of the match. See, this is the golden days, isn't it, uh, John, just to jump in, that, you know, people romance these times as if the whole country, you know, couldn't get enough of snooker. But from what you're saying, <laughs> they were pretty picky about who they watched. Uh, he continues, when the cameras cut from the preview live introduction for the afternoon, Dickie, a little flustered, thanked us thanked us for landing a minute and told us we were a rotten lot with a smile on his face. Other than at the Crucible, crowds were often sparse in those days unless Alex was playing. Uh, players playing in exhibitions when tournaments are on, it used to happen all the time when they were knocked out, but there was a rule they couldn't be played within so many miles of the venue. I remember in an exhibition, Steve Davis saying that in his latter years as a pro, Barry Hearn had always booked him exhibitions for the second half of the UK Championship. It was also common for another player to take the exhibition if the book player was still in the tournament. It was how they earned a living. Providing some basic prize money, not ranking points, for first-round losers in tournaments would help encourage entry, so at least it won't cost players to go to a tournament. But with a limited number of years for a pro to earn serious money, they need to cash in while they can. Hopefully more promoters will run organised exhibitions which, with dates that don't clash with World Snooker events. Of course, there is the £20,000 thing they get now, the £20,000 that they're guaranteed, that obviously if you go over that, you know, it counts back towards prize money, but that they are new players or any players guaranteeing that now um, in lieu of actual prize money in the first round. John says, thanks for all the entertainment and fantastic comment. Uh, he's been going to the Crucible most years since 1983, so he knows what he's talking about. Uh, we'll get on now to the uh, the Macau business. I'll just take a, a just take a swig of water before we start this, if you just excuse me. Now, most podcasts would have paused there, but, uh, you know, it, it, this is free form. Uh, Neil Caesar, 
We're going to hail Caesar briefly here. He said, so these, I'll, I'll read these comments out and then I'll just say what I think and then we'll move on because, frankly, I'm a little bit fed up of hearing about this subject. But um, having said that, we're going to spend the next ten minutes talking about it. <laughs> so Neil Caesar says, If Ronnie O'Sullivan is so enamoured with China and Saudi Arabia, then perhaps he ought to live out there and see what it's like away from snooker tournaments. He never stops moaning about the game that made him a multi-millionaire. Well, trenchant and to the point there. Gary says, in regards to the Northern Ireland controversy, I have to say I don't see an issue. The entire point of all the events is that it allows players to pick and choose. Didn't Barry Hearn say that himself? I do think something is brewing, however, between the players and Will Snooker Tour. And my interpretation is a mixture of poor attendance in bad venues at too many events and schedules. I think what happened to Mark Selby is a good example of this. He played in a final late into Sunday night. Had to travel on the Monday and then play Tuesday and twice on Wednesday with one of his matches not starting until near midnight. What other professional sport has a match with fans attending starting at that time? What do you think? Thanks for the excellent podcast. Just briefly on that, I mean, it's obviously unusual to start any event at that time. Australian Open Tennis, of course, they do have night matches. Um, I think this has actually been looked at recently because of the the kind of just player welfare but I mean they've had matches that actually do start around that time and um, go on till like four in the morning I mean that's happened Andy Murray has played in them and it's it's not great obviously but it does happen um, Dave Friedel he says congratulations on your podcast eight year anniversary an impressive achievement but only the latest milestone in a long and impactful career your analysis insight and knowledge of the game in commentary make every match more enjoyable your knowledge of the sport's history together with your balanced perspective give your opinions extra weight, something that's especially valuable during contentious moments like these. Well, I'm blushing prettily there, Dave. That's very kind of you to say that. Um, we'll continue. He says, it's Wednesday afternoon here across the pond. I've just enjoyed your latest podcast, pivoting from Judd's exciting victory at the English Open to the action in Wuhan. You wrapped up that show with discussion of the storm clouds gathering around the Northern Ireland Open due to the scheduling conflict with the Macau Invitational. WST's formal statement was published shortly after you released that podcast. <coughs> Excuse me. I suspect you'll give it a mixed review, applauding their decision to make a public statement, but expressing disappointment with a heavy-handed and negative message. I'm reminded of the public spat six months back between Ronnie and Steve Dawson. I also remember your even-handed assessment of that situation. To paraphrase, if you saw an old lady trip over a crack in the sidewalk, you wouldn't stand around complaining about the town council's misguided fiscal priorities. You'd help her up. Snooker needs our help, so let's all try to be as positive as we can and work together to make the sport achieve the bright future we all wanted to see. WST's reaction, forcefully amplified by Barry Hearn, seems tone-deaf and short-sighted to me. How much different it would have been to look beyond the Northern Ireland Open and see the bigger picture. WST could have reminded everyone that the new leadership strategy communications team has been in place a relatively short time and pointed out how quickly they've achieved one of their paramount goals, adding more events and bringing snooker back to China. Rather than framing the issue around legal obligations and disloyalty, they could point out how exciting it is that sponsors in Macau see such profit potential in our little sport. Indeed, how many other sports would love to have snooker's problem, a lucrative event on one continent and a prestigious event on another, bumping into each other on the calendar? Of course, nobody would wish to see top players pull out of any ranking event, but why is WST assuming the damage to the brand? Why not continue promoting the Northern Ireland Open in a positive light and evaluate the facts as businessmen and women comparing ticket sales, attendance, ratings to last year's figures? Doesn't the absence of these five players also open up opportunities for others to get deeper into the tournament, perhaps make it onto the TV table, gaining valuable experience? Why not see this as an opportunity to showcase those other players investing in the sport's future? And isn't Mark Allen's hometown hero story just as compelling with or without those other players in the mix? I fear WST's decision to go 
on the attack will only keep everyone's attention on the sport's problems, some of which, live scoring anyone, point right back at the accusers. Increasingly, this new WST team is earning the reputation, in my view, of never missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Now on to a lighter, not to lighter points. So Dave has pivoted here quite dramatically. He says your latest episode included an interesting question from a listener about family members who faced each other in the on the pro circuit. I expect by now others will have pointed out another real time example: Oliver and Peter Lyons. Well, of course, yes, that's that is true. And in fact, Ryan Thomason, the Australian who played uh, in, on television in the Northern Ireland Open um, against Sean Murphy, his father was actually Paul was actually a, a professional for a couple of years. Um, I only discovered this because this was the open era when anyone could play, basically, who could, you know, afford the entry fees. He played for a couple of seasons, but uh, didn't didn't do much. Anyway, Dave concludes on the topic of snooker's longer term prospects. I've also been thinking about a question you've raised from time to time regarding how to make the game more appealing to younger and more diverse audiences inside and outside of Britain. Several players, including Mark Williams, Stuart Bingham and Luca Brassell, have extensive tattoos. If interviewers started asking them about their tattoos, I think players might open up and share other aspects of their lives and experiences, making them more relatable to a younger audience. For instance, I recently heard that one factor above all others that seems to make the biggest difference in how much money people raise in their GoFundMe appeals is whether the person requesting the money has a tattoo. For the avoidance of doubt, as the lawyers say, the ones with the tattoos, on average, get the most funding. That's a pretty mind-blowing way to end an email, isn't it? Now, I've got no um, way of checking this, but Dave has looked into it, and it seems that... Uh, for some reason, tattoos uh, give you some sort of sway. Stuart Bingham, of course, I mean, he's got this extraordinary well, uh, mosaic, I think you'd have to describe it as, on his back. Um, basically, tattoos from the various tournaments he's won. So there's trophies, there's, for example, monkeys for Gibraltar, and there's like a lion for the Masters, you know. And, and so he, he sort of, it's all themed. The problem is if Stuart were to suddenly win lots of tournaments, he'd run out of space on his body for the uh, the tattoos. But um, it's an interesting, uh, I mean, I, you know, it's a pretty mind-blowing way to end an email. But, um, yeah, I mean, I suppose the one thing about tattoos, they are personal, they're on your body. So maybe you might, may, may be right if they open up about that, they could about other things. But um, anyway, that's 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 one for our our friends in the television production world maybe to look into um, Alpha Bonzi uh, he's got his three, these, these questions were sent after the English Open how badly did Judd Trump need these back to back ranking titles 5,492 miles apart to show himself he's still the real deal I don't think he needed back to back but he needed to win something and of course having won something then you know he's carried on in that vein uh, has Steve Dawson or anyone with influence at World Snooker taken up the challenge to appear on the podcast I better know the answer to this one. Well, to be fair, it wasn't a formal request. I just said it in passing. You know, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't formally request an interview. Uh, with the, and finally, with the news the Macau exhibitions that would have clashed with Northern Ireland Open and postponed, what caused this ceasefire between World Snooker Tour and the Macau Five? How could World Snooker Tour have gotten away with suing the world champion and for the for the big names when players aren't World Snooker or matchroom employees? Thanks as always for the podcast and being the same voice in the madness that is pro snooker. Well, I don't know about that, but um, we, you've, led, you've led us into a topic that obviously has been discussed a lot, um, I would argue too much, but it is a, a valid uh, topic of conversation. Now, since we were last gathered together, um, the, of course, the exhibitions in Macau that were planned during the Northern Ireland Open, so the, the players that were going to take part were Luca Purcell, Mark Selby, John Higgins, Ali Carter and Tepchara Nu. They therefore... Uh, not going to play in the Northern Ireland Open. 
the promoters of the Macau exhibitions moved have moved them to December. So they're still going to take place, but they're not going to clash with the world ranking event. I think most people see that as quite a sensible outcome. Um, the sort of uh, the wrangling behind the scenes, I can't speak about because it's behind the scenes and I, I haven't been part of it. But clearly there's been a lot of kind of friction and it's been quite fraught on all sides. Uh, Mark Allen retracted comments that he made uh, in a newspaper. And, you know, it's all been quite heated. So as I take another swig of water, we'll get into it. Now, I'll say right away, I'm not actually going to give my opinion on this for one very good reason. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of fact that these players have signed a contract to play on the World Snooker Tour. Therefore, they have to abide by that contract. That is how things work in the real world. Now, it's true that they can pick and choose which WST events they play in, but they can't pick and choose which bits of the player's contract they abide by. And again, this is how the real world works. Many of us have employment contracts stipulating the terms of that employment. If we deviate from it, we can end up in legal trouble. That's just a fact of working life. And, you know, if you're a police officer, you can't ring up and say, well, I won't be coming in to work for the next two weeks. I've got a better paid security job somewhere else. But don't worry, I'll be back, you know, when I, when I feel like it. If any of these players started companies and employed people, they would expect them to observe the terms of the contract they'd signed. So, Will Snooker Tour were right to protect the integrity of the professional circuit. It would have been wrong to have exhibitions going on at the same time as a ranking event. It was a sensible move by promoters to shift the dates of the exhibition in Macau to December so there isn't a clash. That way the players can still undertake the exhibitions. Now, to me, that's a, just a sensible outcome. Now, the players may feel the contracts they've signed are too restrictive. That's a separate issue. If they do feel that, then they should get a lawyer to go through it, detail the areas they want changing, take it to the WPBSA Players Board and request a meeting with World Snooker Tour to discuss it and try and find some progress and a way of potentially having a different contract for next season if enough players feel that way. That is a process. It might take time, but it's more productive than bellowing your grievances on social media. That doesn't really get anyone anywhere. Players complain often that they don't have a voice, but they continually fail to attend meetings set up specifically to discuss issues of concern. There was one last season in Leicester that was repeatedly described as being one of the most important in years, and something like ten players showed up for it, with all manner of excuses from the others, you know, that we couldn't make it, etc., etc. I think the players should make more of the voice that they do have, but they need to know how to use it, and they also need to remember that the way they talk about snooker affects the public perception of it. And that's not just players, it's everybody involved in the sport needs to remember that. Because from the outside, it looks like chaos. But the sport is not in crisis. That, that is power bubble nonsense. Ticket sales in Belfast were actually up on last year, despite the non-appearance of several well-known players. And that's down to the way they've been marketed and the way they've been pushed. Television audiences remain fantastic on all channels. And I suspect most people who watch the Northern Ireland Open couldn't care less about this so-called controversy. They just wanted to watch the snooker and they were entertained by Ranger players. They weren't all big names, but there was opportunities for some lesser-known names to come through and show us what they can do. Obviously, Andres Petrov beating Mark Allen was an extraordinary story. We had some very dramatic finishes. Mark, uh, Sean Murphy against Marco Fu springs to mind. And a lot of other stories as well. Robbie McGuigan nearly got over the line against Andy McGill. And obviously, Chris Wakelin did fantastically well. Judd Trump, of course, as well. So, you know, there was a range of interesting characters. And the sport, it must be we must be clear about this. And I think some people need reminding. The sport is the star. Everyone else is passing through. And that's always been the case. It, it applies to all of us, whatever level we're at and whatever role we play. 
we're passing through. Uh, there'll be some day when we're not doing this and someone else is. Um, and for the moment, it's up to us to try and safeguard the integrity of the sport while we're part of it. Uh, some fans seem to think these players... I mean, it's funny. I mean, social media, again, it's, it's, it's a distorting prism. But some fans seem to think the players are sort of like freedom fighters crusading for justice. No, they're not at all, are they? They just want to do less work for more money. And good luck to them. Absolutely good luck to them. Because who doesn't want that? We all do. But any professional sport needs a credible circuit. And these players are only in a position to command big fees for exhibitions because they've been successful in tournaments. It doesn't mean they have to play in Belfast. But who honestly thought it was a good idea to have an exhibition directly clashing with the ranking event? I don't think the players, having said that, have acted in any way maliciously. They've seen a chance, caused primarily by the lopsided calendar, to cash in while in China. They're there anyway, or they're going to go there for the next event. So they, they, this opportunity has come along. I don't think anyone would blame them for being tempted by it. Um, and a more logically structured calendar could mitigate this sort of thing in the future. And I mean, Neil Robertson actually spoke about, and this hasn't really been mentioned before, but the actual sort of Environment, you know, the, the fact that there's so many flights are being taken to China and back across the world for the sort of carbon footprint of the sport is actually not great. And it's something other sports have looked at and maybe something that snooker needs to look at. I don't see a problem with doing exhibitions during qualifiers when the top 16 don't have to play in the qualifiers. So it's about finding the right dates for these lucrative engagements. I don't think anybody wants to stop anything that promotes snooker. So, you know, these exhibitions have a function. It's just slotting them into the calendar. And that's not easy when the calendar is sort of lopsided. But again, you know, we've spoken before and it's true. When you're dealing with different broadcasters, different promoters, different venues, different sponsors, etc., etc., it's not always easy to just slot tournaments in when you when you know when you feel there should be. You know, sometimes there are trade-offs that have to be made to actually get tournaments on at all. So I think the idea of the players are being held back, actually, to anyone in the world of work doesn't really ring true. We all have to abide by the terms of contracts we've signed. Unions have been continually degraded by successive governments, but this is why they exist, to get better deals for workers. So if the players want a better deal, they should organise themselves, not just sort of complain in public. And there are ways of doing it. As I say, if they get a lawyer, then that lawyer may be able to identify ways that the contract could change, that could in future be less restrictive if they think it is restrictive and I have not gone through it with a fine tooth comb so I'm not going to offer any comment on whether it is or it isn't but clearly some of the players think that it is of course another option is just resign as professionals and play as many exhibitions as you want Joe Davis did that in the 1950s and it killed professional snooker of course it was a very different time but if he played an exhibition while the world championship was on it confused the public because the best player wasn't appearing in what was supposed to be the biggest tournament so hopefully going forward these exhibition events can coexist with tournaments in a better structured calendar, that would clearly be the best solution. It would be the best of all worlds. You'd have the tournaments that hopefully are supported by all of the players or, or most of them, but also there are other opportunities outside that for players to promote the sport with these lucrative exhibitions that don't also impede on the set calendar. From WST's side, it didn't help that Barry Hearn was quoted as saying the players would be disciplined or possibly even thrown out of the sport. That wasn't really credible and it fanned the flames unnecessarily. Now, WST were right to assert their legal position. However, they do need to work a little on their bedside manner. There's a feeling among many fans, I think, that there's a distance between them 
and the people running the sport. I'm not talking about the players here. I'm talking about ordinary fans, people I've spoken to, people who email in or tweet me. There is this feeling that, you know, we're running the sport. You go and sit over there and watch and don't, sort of don't bother us. That's the perception. It, it, I'm not saying that's the intention, but that is the perception. One of the problems is power to many people can appear monolithic, and this is amplified by social media where it seems now almost everyone is just sort of nursing their own personal frustrations. I want to be clear here. Will Snooker Tour employs a lot of brilliant people. I know many of them. They work long hours. They do their best. They aren't always given the help they need by others in the sport. But sports always enjoy a better reputation when fans are moved closer to the front line. And I think there are several ways Will Snooker Tour can improve on this score. I'll give you a couple of ideas that they could consider. Okay, During tournaments... Every day, they do interviews on their YouTube channel with players who have just won a match. So, Judd Trump beats somebody 4-0. They bring in Judd Trump. One of their own staff sits and asks him questions for three or four minutes, and they put the video online. Why not, a couple of times during the tournament, or maybe more than a couple of times, when a match is coming to an end and it's clear, for example, Trump's going to win, he's 3-0 up, why not put a tweet out saying, we're going to have Judd Trump coming up shortly send us your questions instead of asking our questions you snooker fans you send your questions and we'll read the best ones out I don't think they appreciate just what it would mean to an average snooker fan there's Lucy in Manchester okay she gets the opportunity to hear her name read out as her question is put to Judd Trump that sort of access and you know breaking down the barriers and actually having that contact with a player would mean a lot to an average snooker fan I know it would of course it would but they never do that. To an extent, you see it done through their podcast. You can send questions to, to Stephen Hendry, which is all good. But I'm talking about during tournaments, the players just won. Instead of having, let's be honest, the same three or four questions asked by the Will Snooker staff, why not ask for questions from the fans? That would, that would be a way, straight away, of taking a barrier down between the two. We're going to ask your questions to a player, not our questions. That's one idea. Another idea, you're at the venue, it's the day of the final, Go down as the fans are coming in and speak to them. Film them. Get stop ten fans and ask them, who's going to win? Who do you want to win? Why do you want them to win? Who's your favourite player? What's been your favourite match this week? You know, What are you hoping to see today? Just put together. They've paid their money to come. Again, acknowledge them. Bring them forward. Bring them to the front line and make them part of the event rather than they're just sat in the background sort of applauding occasionally. So, I mean, they're, they're not in any way revolutionary ideas, but it strikes me that's the sort of thing you could do to gain a bit of um, goodwill, which is definitely lacking at the moment, and take away that kind of arm's length feeling that I know a lot of people have. Now, just to, to conclude on this, people have reasonably complained that we haven't heard enough from Steve Dawson, the World Snooker Tour chairman, on this issue. Well, he's actually been quoted by RTE in Ireland on this, and it's worth reading what he said. So I'll read out what Steve Dawson said about this Macau issue. He said, we've had a lot of comments from a few of the top-ranked players in recent weeks. The gist of these comments is that certain players want the chance to make extra money from exhibition matches in China. We have no issue with that. We simply ask that the promoters of those events have the common sense to schedule their exhibition matches at times that don't clash with our tournaments. The player should understand that is a perfectly reasonable requirement on their part. On our part, sorry. It's great that our sport creates opportunities for a limited number of players to earn outside of the tour. But it's also important to remember that those players became major stars in the first place through their success on our tour. 
As with every international sport, we're always looking to develop the tour. Players can be confident that we prioritise their welfare when we put the calendar together, balancing travel with opportunities to earn. This is something we continually look to improve in collaboration with our event partners and the WPUSA and the WPUSA Players Board. So that's Steve Dawson uh, commenting on, on this issue. So to conclude then, the truth is, all of this only happened really because of the popularity of snooker and therefore the demand for it. Um, which is a good thing. But we don't want every tournament to be overshadowed by complaints and controversy. People say they don't have a, we don't have enough sponsors or we don't have the right sponsors. Well, what do they expect, given the toxic smell that seems to accompany every event? There are many things that could improve. For instance, the situation with live scoring at tournaments is making the sport look bad on live television. Even Barry Hawkins cracked during a match last week and spoke out about it. And if you've lost Barry, <laughs> you know, you're in serious trouble. Well, he's not a controversial character, but he was playing a match against Jimmy Robertson. There was a massive delay that to sit and wait. And then just as it looked like they were going to get going again, he came back to the table and the referee told him he'll have to wait again. These people are playing for their living. It's just not good enough. And I don't blame him for being upset. So appropriate criticism should be made and they should be listened to. But so many people, players included, have said they want snooker to be more professionally run along the lines of other sports. Well, I think the answer to that is careful what you wish for. How do you think the golf or tennis authorities would have handled this situation? Or football or cricket or rugby or any of those other top-line sports? There are many opportunities for players to play and earn a good living. They're within their rights to also seek other opportunities. It's in everyone's interest that these sometimes competing opportunities are sensibly managed for the benefit of the sport as a whole. Uh, I said I wasn't going to give my opinion. I kind of did. But anyway, that's it. We move on. Rory Gavin writes, I'm a long-time listener and first-time emailer and was just writing in to ask your opinion on what would be the best way to get into sports journalism, ideally snooker at the moment. I've been scouring the internet for sports journalism graduate schemes as I'm in my final year at university. But despite a frankly excessive amount of Googling, much like my favourite player, John Higgins, I keep coming up just short of success. Uh, are there any particular schemes which you yourself used or are aware of today? And are there any opportunities in the snooker world which I'm yet to discern? I should say at this point that I get a particular twinge of jealousy when reading your terrific articles about the history of the British Open or an arcane story about Bob Chaperon. And I hope you keep contributing to the world of snooker because I'm certain it will be a duller place without you. Well, that's very kind of you, Rory. I'm not sure where you're actually uh, studying right now um, I'm just uh, reading your email again uh, yeah I don't know I mean oh finally at university okay you don't say where you are I mean the, there's um, the University of Gloucester in uh, Gloucestershire um, does a first rate sports journalism course and many people many graduates leave that and go on to have successful careers. It's a bit difficult for me to answer this in a way because it's been so long <laughs> since I started that the, the whole media landscape really has changed completely. And one of the things now, of course, is that, I mean, when I sort of started, I was a writer, really. I, I did newspapers initially um, and some radio, but it was all based on writing, whereas, of course, now so much of it is based on digital media. So all those skills are important to have, you know, editing skills, filming skills. You know, the guys now who, who, who do the, you know, the World Snooker um, digital media, they're all incredibly talented in lots of different areas. Whereas when I started, I just wrote, you know, and that was enough back then. I mean, it's, it was funny, actually, I was at the, at the Crucible this year, um, 
at the world final and I thought back to, I was looking around the room, thought back to when I started. The first day I walked in that room, it was the 1998 World Championship, so it was 25 years, quarter of a century earlier. And I realised a couple of things. One, that I went from being probably the youngest person in the room to, if not quite the oldest, then one of them. And that, and that, that will happen in 25 years, obviously. That's not <laughs> hard to work out why that is. Um, but the other thing was, I looked around the room and I realised that there was no one in the room now, in 2023, who was in the room back in 1998, other than me. Um, and that's that was quite an extraordinary revelation because back then, so many of the characters in that media centre seemed vital to the tournament. And it seemed almost like that we couldn't have the tournament without them. There were so many big characters and big hitters from national newspapers and broadcasters, feature writers, even photographers, you know, were big, big names back then. All have gone on to other things um, or have, have just, you know, gone on <laughs> full stop. Um, and that is what will happen in a sport. But it was kind of, it, it was, it was revealing about what happened to the media. Back then when I started, every national newspaper had a booth at the Crucible and, a, and a, obviously a correspondent, a journalist representing that newspaper. But what happened over the years was print journalism started to die out with the rise of the internet. And the sort of dedicated uh, journalists started to dwindle away as football started to drive the advertising um, and therefore began to dominate sports coverage. Um, I mean, football's always been big, but it, the, the sort of column inches and the space it takes up now, you know, uh, is bigger than ever. And other sports have been sort of sidelined because of that. Um, However, there, uh, I'm not trying to be downbeat here. There is an opportunity because what, what's happened is when I was a freelance journalist, I did that for about seven years. I was part of a band of brothers, really. There was four or five of us who would be at every event and then you'd get other journalists turning up. So the average ranking event, you might get seven or eight journalists there every day. Now, it's quite common that there's no journalists there. Literally none. Um, because the people who cover snooker by and large, do it because they love the sport. They're not forced into doing it and quite often have to fit it around other things. Phil Haig does brilliant work, Metro Online, but he has to work certain shifts, which means he can't, he has to be at his desk, he can't be at a snooker tournament. So he can't go to every day of every tournament. Uh, Hector Nunns has recently announced, I mean, he's been the leading freelance really for the last decade, doing lots of different national newspapers, getting good stories in. But he's announced that he's going to step back from snooker, which I think is a great shame. Because what we have now is no independent journalistic voice at these tournaments. Um, and all sorts of things could be happening that are going unreported. If, if you're not at the event, it's obviously harder to discern what's actually happening at the event. And it's easier for... I mean, World Snooker, I know, think sometimes that the media criticism they get is quite um, strong. But actually, they're in a pretty good position. They get to control a lot of what people hear about because obviously you know if there are no journalists there then there are things that are happening that are not going noticed and reported which is not a healthy state of affairs it's completely the opposite to how it was when i started um so that presents an opportunity then therefore to someone like yourself but it's not easy obviously you need to get enough work to make it pay so you need to interest the media and the media a lot of the time are not interested in snooker outside of television which obviously it's massive on tv and that's brilliant 
in terms of written journalism, you know, it, it isn't, and that's a, that's a fact, and that's a, a reality that a lot of sort of sports have to. I don't like the term minority sport because actually everything's a minority sport, really. Um, I mean, you know, even football, a big, a big uh, World Cup match, most of the country won't be watching it. But 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 there's a sort of different grades of minority, and we are, as a written sport, we're not particularly high in the pecking order. Um, so. And if you're a freelance, obviously you'd have to put yourself up at a tournament. It's not easy. Um, and when I started, and you know we're going back a quarter of a century now, you know I I, I would stay in some terrible places, you know, on the cheap, and you know you'd scrimp and save a bit like players do actually in a way. Um, the difference being we didn't have a chance to earn eighty grand in a week. <laughs> um, you know you. I was so reliant on people like Ken Doherty winning because I, I wrote for Irish newspapers, but they only took stories on the Irish players. So Ken, in his pomp, <laughs> basically put food on the table. That's true of Scottish players writing for Scottish papers and so on. If I could do, as a freelance, if you can do sort of seven or eight different uh, things in one day, so I would like update CFAX, that would be 30 quid, or updating a website would be 30 quid, and then a newspaper story is another 70 quid, and then another newspaper story might be another 50 quid. And so, you, you know, you're hoping to get that every day, but you can't be guaranteed it. So it's a risk. Um, in terms of your sort of entry into it, I keep talking about Phil Haig on this podcast. He must think I'm obsessed with him. But I know for a fact that when he was a student, he did work experience in the press room at Thomas Will Snooker. This is something they do quite a lot. And Ivan Hershevitz, who's the head of media, who's uh, a brilliant guy and, you know, straight down the line kind of guy, he quite often will get a student in to help out, give them experience, but also to help, help them out with various tasks in the, in the media centre. So it might be worth approaching him um, at Will Snooker if you email them and just explain that you're, you know, where you, university student, I, I, again I don't know where you are but you might be near a tournament, that's something that they do they, they get students in to help out for a couple of days, you get to see, see it from the inside and see whether it's for you or not um, and there are of course things you can do yourself now which maybe didn't exist back in the day, you could do, I mean uh, maybe there's enough podcasts already but you could do your own podcast maybe um, or, or, or something that, that you can take to uh, an employer in the future and say look I've done this myself there's a young lad, Chris, who's just started at Will Snooker, um, who was very proactive as a student, doing his own YouTube channel and doing his own stuff. So when he went for a job interview with them, he could show them all the stuff he'd done, and it was all good, and so they employ him, you know? So there are things you can do yourself, but I, I would my, my advice to you would be, like, try and get the work experience first, because then you'll see it from the inside, and you'll see, actually, is this for me or not? Um, and then, if it is... You need to try and build up a sort of repertoire of work. Um, it's not easy, but as I say, it's an opportunity at the moment because <laughs> a lot of tournaments, there's nobody there. So somebody, it doesn't mean things aren't being reported, but they're being reported from afar. But there's an opportunity for somebody, potentially, to get in there and become a regular journalist at tournaments. It brings me actually to, I wanted to mention, uh, Eddie Hearn was on the World Snooker podcast, which I thought was a really interesting interview because we've heard from people, including Barry's dad, actually, Oh, Eddie doesn't like snooker. You know, he hates snooker, doesn't like it. It clearly is not true. If you listen to the interview, it wasn't true at all. He's got great affection for it because he'd grown up around it. The point he made was snooker is Barry Hearn's passion, whereas his personal passion is boxing. But it doesn't mean he doesn't like snooker. I thought he spoke in a really interesting way about it. 
and quite reassuring way also. And and he actually went completely against what Barry himself had said about the Crucible. Eddie seemed to suggest that it should stay there, which is kind of opposite of what we were maybe expecting to hear. So that's kind of complicated, that whole issue. But one thing he did say that I wanted to mention was he said that, and, and I agree with him, he's right what he says, he says in the 1980s the characters of the players or the players themselves were more, were better known to the public because what's changed in the interim period is sports become more serious, there's more money in it, so people are more driven towards being professional, in effect, and not kind of, you know, getting involved in fights outside pubs and, and being, you know, that, that, that kind of side of things. And that's all true. But as I listened to him say it, I thought, well, that's, that's true, but there are actually now advantages that didn't exist back then. The WPSA in the 80s relied on television and the traditional media to promote snooker, whereas now there are so many outlets where snooker can promote itself. And I've been saying for at least three years on here, you know, we need a behind-the-scenes documentary um, that so many other sports now seem to have on snooker. Imagine being on that plane to Wuhan with Judd Trump off the back of winning in the English Open. Like, what? how's he feeling? What's he saying? What are his thoughts about going to China? Or the other side of it, you know, being the other side of sport, being behind the scenes with Jack Lazowski after that pretty crushing defeat to Chris Wakeland in the semi-finals. Um, the snooker circuit is, is an interesting place, and I think I do think that we really need something like that to bring in a new audience and, you know, to create this awareness that Eddie Hearn's talking about of the characters in the game. Um, and also, like, again, I talked about the YouTube stuff earlier. Like, they were in Belfast last week. We didn't see any of the city. We All we saw, I'm talking about the YouTube channel, were, pl- were match highlights and players being interviewed after matches, all of which is fine and good. But Belfast is one of the most iconic cities in the UK. Jordan Brown, OK, beat Neil Robertson, which is a great win, local man, didn't play the next day. Why not take Jordan Brown? Get, t- Jordan Brown takes us around Belfast. Show some of the sites that we, that if we're, if we're going to come and watch the, the tournament, we might want to see. Go down to Sandy Row where the Alex Higgins mural is. Um, and at the same time, you're projecting Jordan's personality then. So these, again, these are ideas. That's all they are. I don't see the negatives in them. Obviously, you know, you have to balance time. But I mean, it's, I found it quite odd that we didn't see Belfast at all <laughs> the whole week they were there, um, in a tournament in an extraordinary city. And they're going to Edinburgh soon. That's the same. I mean, I've been there to Edinburgh every year for, for years at the festival. There's so many things there, places you could go to promote. Because that's one thing we don't see. Like, there's a lot of cycling on Eurosport. And, of course, the brilliant thing about that is you see the outside, you see the wonderful scenery. We don't see that in snooker. We see the snooker tables. But maybe we could do more to bring people in by promoting the, the, the places we're, we're actually going to as well. Um, but in answer to your question, Rory, there's maybe an opportunity there but it's about finding your way in and maybe just dipping your toe into it first to see if it is for you. Um, I think sometimes people may think it's it's quite glamorous. I can assure you it's not. <laughs> it isn't. It's quite uh, mundane, and actually that's one of the good things about it. You know, people are very ordinary and very kind of down-to-earth, and that's, that's one of the good things about snooker, and long may that continue. Anyway, that's it. We're back. Uh, but that is it for this week. Now, do keep the emails coming in. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. And in particular, with the weeks to come, the UK Championship coming around the corner in about a month's time, just under. 
any specific UK Championship memories you have? Maybe you went in the old days in Preston, you saw matches that are memorable, or you watched on TV that are memorable. Doesn't matter whether it's recent or going a long way back. Great tournament worth celebrating. So do let us know your UK Championship memories, and we'll read those out nearer the time. We're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. Uh, but in the meantime, it's nice to be back. Thanks for listening. And, uh, well, we, we march onwards, whatever that means. Oh, by the way, <laughs> you might be, might be saying this is all very well, but where's the joke section? Well, that's been slightly retired for now. Um, you know, there's only so many snooker jokes, and most of them aren't funny, as we've found out over the weeks. Uh, it may come back, but um, unlikely to, I think. Uh, it's a serious time of the season. Now the weather's bad in Britain, it, may, it means there's going to be some seriously good snooker on the telly, and that's what we like. Uh, so, that, as I say, again, thanks for listening, and as we always say, but have not said for a few weeks, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.